Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This is number three in our series, History of Ideas. In it, David discusses Benjamin Constant's idea of liberty in the modern world. It's about politics and revolution, but it's also about sex and shopping. Talking Politics, History of Ideas is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine. After each episode, continue your exploration of the history of ideas in their unrivaled archive of essays and reviews, films and podcasts, and find out more about how a subscription to the LRB can be an indispensable home learning and student resource by heading over to their website, lrb.me forward slash ideas. That's lrb.me forward slash ideas ideas. The two authors I've talked about so far might be surprised to discover that they're mainly remembered now as political thinkers. Hobbes, in his own mind, was what used to be called a natural philosopher, or what we would now call a scientist. He actually thought that the main business of his intellectual life wasn't constructing the artificial world of the state and establishing order there. It was trying to understand the order in the natural world. That's what he went back to doing after he'd finished Leviathan. But Leviathan is what we remember him for. Mary Wollstonecraft would probably have described herself as an educator. And actually, there's much more about education in a vindication of the rights of women than there is about what we would call politics. But it's remembered as a book about politics, not so much about education. The same is true of the author I'm talking about today, Benjamin Constant. He is probably still known for his political thinking, but in his own lifetime, he did so much more than just think about politics. And he was probably at various points, much more interested in the other stuff. He wrote about art. He wrote about religion. He wrote about culture. He wrote about law. He wrote novels. I'm going to talk about one of those novels later on today. The piece of writing that is the focus of this talk was not actually, certainly wasn't a book. It was written down, but it was written down to be spoken because it was a lecture, a lecture that he delivered in 1819 in Paris called The Liberty of the Ancients Compared to the Liberty of the Moderns, one of the defining texts about how we should understand freedom. And that's going to be the focus of my talk, the idea of freedom or liberty. But I want to say a bit more about Constant himself. And as we go through these talks, I want to try and compare each new author or new piece of writing to what's gone before to build up a picture. Try not to compare too much outside of the frame of text that I'm talking about. Try and keep it inside what I've said already. It's a bit contrived to compare Benjamin Constant to Mary Wollstonecraft and Thomas Hobbes, but that's where we are three talks in. There are a few words that characterize Constant and give a sense of the kind of person he was and the kind of interest he had. And I'll just go through them briefly. So one way you could describe him is to say that Constant was a romantic. That's both a capital R romantic and a small r romantic. So capital R romantic means he was connected to, maybe on the fringes of, 
that grand movement in the history of ideas that's called Romanticism that flourished at the end of the 18th and particularly in the early 19th century that was in part a reaction against the scientific revolution, Hobbes's scientific revolution, a reaction against the industrial revolution that came after Hobbes, that celebrated feeling, emotion, direct encounters with nature, the idea of the sublime, of being awestruck by what is natural, not by what is mechanical. It manifested in music, in painting, in literature, in fiction. Constant was that kind of romantic. He wrote about it and thought about it. But he was also what we might mean by a romantic, the small our kind. He was someone who loved the idea of love and was someone who lived a life in pursuit of romantic love. He was twice married. That's twice more than Hobbes. But the great love of his life was neither of his wives. It was a woman called Madame de Stahl, who was married to someone else, not to Constant, one of the most famous public intellectuals of the age, certainly one of the most famous women of the age. Madame de Stahl was written about by Mary Wollstonecraft in A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, and actually is one of the objects of her attack of people who have, she thought, a false idea of education, because Madame de Stahl still insisted that women should be educated differently than men. Constant fell in love with her. It was a strange relationship. De Stahl was the dominant partner. There may have been a bit of sadomasochism involved. Constant was the kind of romantic who found some forms of love in being dominated. But he was what we would call a lover. That is, he lived a life in which he pursued love affairs and all that went with that threatening suicide, writing love letters, writing poetry, climbing in and out of people's bedroom windows, that kind of romantic. Hobbes was not a romantic, not capital R, because that would be anachronistic, not small r, because that's not who he was at all. His was not a romantic life. Mary Wollstonecraft did lead a kind of romantic life. There is a way of telling her life story where it fits a pattern of a certain kind of romance and ideals about romance. But she was also pretty dismissive of the label, and she particularly hated it when men talked about the ideas of women and called them romantic. And in A Vindication of the Rights of Women, she explicitly says she does not want people to say that her ideas are romantic ideas, because for her, romantic meant wishful, kind of will of the wisp, the sort of ideas that will be blown away by the cold winds of reality. And Mary Wollstonecraft says of romantic love that it doesn't last. After a year or two, you need something more solid to rest it on. Constant carried on pursuing it. If you need something more solid to rest it on after a year or two, Constant's option was to look for it somewhere else. It was more that kind of life. But he wasn't just a romantic. He also was a constitutional theorist. He wrote about law as well as about love. Another word to describe him, a very different kind of word, is that Constant was a liberal, small l, liberal, but not liberal in the contemporary North American sense, not a liberal because he believed in 20th century ideas of a welfare state or state intervention. That wouldn't have made sense in his terms. It was liberalism in something like the modern classic sense, not classical or ancient, but the sort of liberalism that emerged in the 19th century, and Constant was an early champion of it. Ideas of freedom, of liberty, 
of protection for the individual against the arbitrary power of the sovereign state. If you're a romantic, it's not hard to be a liberal, though liberalism is very different from romanticism, because if you want to follow your heart, you need to be sure that you have the space and the freedom to do so. It is harder to follow your heart if you are always being told by the state that it's off limits. There have occasionally been attempts to portray Hobbes as a kind of early or proto-liberal because the Hobbesian idea of the state does leave a huge amount out of politics. It does leave a huge amount not covered by the law, by coercion, by power, where, as Hobbes said, people can do whatever they like, whatever they think is profitable for themselves. And if they find profit in love or love in profit, good luck to them. But Constant was very clear, and he says it because he writes about Hobbes, that Hobbes was not a liberal. Constant says that Hobbes got halfway there. He was half right. The bit that he got right was to construct the state around the idea of representation. The idea that the way politics must work in the modern world is that most people delegate political power to their representatives to take decisions for them. Constant had a catchphrase not as famous as Hobbes's, but if you had to sum up a part of Constant's argument, it was, as he said, rich men hire stewards. The rich men are us, the moderns, living our relatively comfortable lives. The stewards are our politicians. We hire people to take decisions for us to do the difficult work of managing the state, our estate, because we don't have the time or the interest or the inclination. But Constant was clear rich men who hire stewards and then let the stewards get on with it without keeping an eye on them will quite soon find themselves poor. The trouble with the Hobbesian conception is it gives all the power to the stewards. You need a form of politics, Constant thought, where you were secure against the abuse of power by the people in whom you had entrusted power. And that meant you needed a liberal constitution. That is, a political constitution that set limits to the power of the sovereign authority in the state. And Constant spent quite a lot of time trying to, through the French Revolution and beyond, devise such a constitution for France, though ultimately he failed. He did think that there were models to draw on. There were places you could look, places that would not have been available to Hobbes, who had no model for his state except what was in his head. Constant looked across the channel he spent most of his life in France, but he was born in Switzerland. He was Swiss-French. He looked across the channel to England, to Britain, as a model of a certain kind of liberal state. It was not a democratic state, but it was liberal in the sense that the rule of law and a series of constitutional understandings limited the power of the sovereign, the sovereign being the king in parliament. Arbitrary power was difficult to exercise in the English system, because there were constraints, and it's constraints on power that allow citizens to be free. This was the state that Wollstonecraft thought was rotten. Wollstonecraft looked at the French revolutionary state for hope. Constant looked at the English state for a model, the grass is always greener. Constant also had another example in mind of how a liberal state might be organised, the United States of America, which had come into existence around the same time as the French Revolution, and by the time Constant gave his lecture in 1819, was up and running, had been through a generation of politics, and, even if it didn't exactly work, 
seem to be a viable living experiment. I'm going to talk more about that next time when I talk about Tocqueville and democracy in America. But there was in the American experiment an idea that was deeply attractive to Constant, the idea of the separation of powers. One way you can preserve liberal freedoms is to make sure that the stewards keep an eye on each other. That is, the different branches of government set limits to the other branches of government. If we are genuinely either too busy or too indifferent to do it ourselves, we can at least ask our representatives to watch over each other to make sure that if someone oversteps the bounds, someone else within government, within the state, will put them back in their box. Whether it worked in the American case is another question, but the idea was a modern idea. It was not an ancient idea. It was new. And Constant thought it was certainly worth considering. The central event of Constant's life was the French Revolution and its aftermath. The terror, the rise of Napoleon, the growth of the Napoleonic Empire through Europe, the collapse of that empire, the brief return of Napoleon in 1815, the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo, the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy. So the French Revolution was at the heart of Constant's life, as it was at the heart of Wollstonecraft's life, as the English Revolution was at the heart of Hobbes's life. But they fall in different places. The English Revolution is in the middle of Hobbes's life, and he wrote in the middle of the Revolution. 1651 is exactly halfway between 1642 and 1660. One way to think about a revolution, it's almost what it literally means, is it's a turning of the wheel. Society revolves, it turns around. Those who are bottom come out on top. The people who are on top find themselves on the bottom. Kings get their heads cut off. Commoners end up ruling for a while anyway. But in many revolutions, not all, but in many revolutions, the wheel keeps turning and it turns all the way. 1651 is halfway, so the wheel has turned halfway, the king is dead. By 1660, the wheel had turned all the way, and the king's son was king again. In the French case, by 1815, the wheel had turned all the way, from revolution to terror, to Napoleonic rule, to empire, to collapse, and back to the king again. Constant wrote after all that. For Wollstonecraft, the revolution came towards the end of her relatively short life, and she lived through it. Constant actually, a bit like Hobbes, got away from the nastiest bits of his revolution. He was away for much of the terror. He might not have survived it. The key events for him were what came after. But Constant had the thing that Wollstonecraft and Hobbes did not have, the benefit of hindsight. In 1819, he is thinking about the lessons of the central political events of his lifetime after they've completed the turning of the wheel. And he's able to draw lessons on the basis of knowing, in that story at least, how it ended. Some of his earlier writings were haunted by the kind of precariousness that Hobbes experienced when he wrote Leviathan. Hobbes's great mistake in his own mind was writing Leviathan 1649-1650, publishing it in 1651. It meant it came out at the point where the sovereign power in England was the parliament. And under the terms of Hobbes's argument, you had to suck up the sovereign power that you had. And that meant 
though he was on the side of the king, Leviathan had to at least admit that people ought to obey their sovereign, and that now meant parliament. So when the king came back, Hobbes was in trouble. Constant as a liberal did not approve of Napoleonic rule, nor did he approve of Napoleon. But when Napoleon came back in 1815, and Constant thought or maybe feared that Napoleon might still just be the future for France, he made an attempt to construct with Napoleon a possible constitution that would limit the power of the emperor. It was a fateful mistake because a hundred days later Napoleon was gone and Constant looked compromised. But by 1819, reflecting on the whole story, he wanted to draw a much wider lesson. It wasn't about him. Actually, it wasn't even about France versus England, France versus the United States. It wasn't about revolution versus empire or revolution versus reaction or revolution versus reform. It wasn't about the divisions or choices of the modern world and modern France. It was about the fundamental contrast that I began this series of talks with between modern politics and pre-modern, or what Constant called ancient politics. And for Constant, the central lesson of the French Revolution and its aftermath was what it taught moderns, people like him, people like us, about the nature of liberty. The argument that Constant made in that lecture was that it is possible to draw a pretty stark and clear contrast between ancient ideals of liberty and modern ideals of liberty. They are very, very different. In the ancient world, the world of Athens or Sparta, the world of Republican Rome, to be free meant to be a member of a free state. So freedom was fundamentally collective. You shared your freedom with others. You defended it alongside others. What would kill your freedom would not be you personally being made unfree, but your state, the state of which you were a member, being made unfree, being captured, being conquered, being colonized. Freedom was collective. It was shared. It was built around the fundamental threat to freedom, which was war and defeat. So freedom was also martial in the sense that it was expressed through war, through self-defense, collective self-defense, not individual self-defense. If you shared your freedom, you also shared the values that you were trying to defend. So in free states, people often had a shared understanding of who they were and how they ought to live. And crucially, in the ancient world, freedom was primarily public. It was expressed collectively and publicly in the public sphere, as we moderns might say. That distinction didn't really hold in some ancient states. There wasn't a distinction between public and private. To be a citizen was to belong to the world of politics, the world of the res publica, and to live a public life was to manifest your freedom. That for Constant was an ancient idea, but it wasn't a primitive idea or a backward idea. It didn't die out because it was stupid or wrong. He thought it was a heroic idea. It was a noble idea. It was a deeply attractive idea. The French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité, the fraternity, the brotherhood, it's sexist, Wollstonecraft doesn't like that bit, but the brotherhood was an expression of ancient ideals of freedom. 
But Constance says that is not actually how modern people can or want to live. That to be a modern, to live in the modern world, the world that has been created, for want of a better marking point, since Hobbes, is to live a world and a life where freedom is not collective, it's individual. It doesn't belong to us because we belong to a free state. It belongs to us because we are free individuals. We are our own people as individuals. And at some level, to be free means that we are free to choose as individuals how we want to live. Not because it's what we share with everyone else in our state, but maybe because it's what makes us different from other people in our state. That's the manifestation of our freedom, the ability to lead a different life, maybe to worship a different God, not to share in the civic religion of the state, maybe to pursue a different line of business than everyone else, maybe to be interested in making money when other people disapprove, maybe being interested in doing anything of which other people disapprove. Modern freedoms are freedom of religion, of expression, of association. Freedom of association means if you want to do something in public, you're free to choose where and how. You don't have to gather in the public square of the state. It's individual, it's commercial, because modern societies are not martial societies. We are not primarily war-fighting peoples, though we fight wars. We're trading peoples, we're commercial people. Modern liberty fits the world of commerce, where we exchange goods, we fix prices according to what people, individuals, are willing to pay. And we trade because we're free to move around. So freedom of movement is a crucial modern freedom. There are borders, of course, but also there are ways through and round borders in the modern world. And finally, most importantly, it's private, not public. Freedom in the modern world means the freedom to exist, maybe even retreat into the private sphere, domestic, inside the home, inside the heart, inside the head, inside the conscience of the individual, to do what we want, partly because we are reasonably confident that even if some people might be watching, the state is not watching. And if the state is watching, the state is relatively indifferent. Modern freedom is individual, commercial, private. Ancient freedom is collective, martial, public. It's a pretty clear divide. But as I say, it's not for Constant that ancient freedom is a bad idea. Part of the problem with ancient freedom for Constant is it is such an appealing idea to modern citizens. It draws us in and it draws us back because we feel that we are a little inadequate compared to the ancients that our version of freedom is a little thin, a little shallow, and a little selfish? Do we really want to be commercial peoples when we could be martial peoples, when we could be noble, true brothers? And part of what went wrong for Constant with the French Revolution, and it doesn't really matter whether this works as actual history, it works in the history of ideas because it allows Constant to make his point. If you believe in the ideals of ancient freedom, which he thought many of the revolutionaries explicitly did. They were inspired by Sparta or Rome or Athens. They were trying to do something which, in modern terms, is simply impossible. It's kind of irresistible, but it's also impossible. You can't do it. We can't lead that kind of collective life. 
Why not? Because there are too many of us. Ancient freedom only works in small states, intimate states. Public freedom only works when you can look your fellow citizens in the eye. France, by the beginning of the 19th century, had 25 million plus people in it. You cannot do ancient freedom in that kind of state. It's a trading state. It's a state where most human relationships are mediated by money. Ancient freedom looked down on money. It was suspicious of money. Some ancient states tried to do without money altogether. No modern state can function for a day without money, without debt. We are in relationships of debt to each other. Our state is in a relationship of debt to us. We're always borrowing money from each other. The state is always borrowing money from us. You can't do ancient freedom in that world. We are too attached to our private lives. We do not want to be told how to live, even if deep down we might admire the people who manage to do without privacy. We're not willing to give it up. So if you try and make a modern state fit the pattern of ancient freedom, what you will get is the end of freedom, the end of liberty. You will just get coercion. You will just get the authority of the state arbitrarily deployed, trying to force people to behave in certain ways, to conform to certain ideals, trying to make them into a brotherhood when it's impossible. Coercion will become conflict. Conflict will become violence. Violence will become terror. Terror will lead to death. The French Revolution was a kind of case study for Constant in what happens when you try and squeeze the diversity of a modern state into the simple ideals of ancient liberty. It doesn't fit, and trying to make it fit leads people to lose their lives. But Constant's message is more complicated than that, and actually it's a lot more interesting than that. If that was his argument, I'm not sure this lecture would have lasted in the way that it has. That argument is almost too obvious, and it is too crude as political history. The French Revolution wasn't just an attempt to turn France into Sparta, and it failed because France is too big. Constant was very, very aware that part of the problem with the attraction of ancient liberty was that modern liberty was not, for many moderns, attractive enough. That is, they wanted it, they had become attached to it. Many of us, maybe all of us, are very reluctant to give up our private freedoms but we're not completely sure why, and we are quite easily persuaded that there's something wrong with us for leading such private lives. And ancient freedom has its appeal, has its pull, because modern freedom doesn't quite have the ringing endorsements of philosophical principle that ancient freedom does. Fraternité will always pull us back, some of us anyway. So one risk of the modern world, a permanent risk, in any modern, commercial, individualistic, private society, is that people will be tempted back into something, frankly, in Constance's terms, better, more attractive, potentially more politically fulfilling than narrow modern freedom. So one problem with modern freedom is it's not totally clear that the moderns know how to defend it. But the other problem, the deeper problem, is that modern liberty can pull us the other way. That is, if you are a modern citizen, you can get drawn into the private sphere, the individualistic sphere, and think that it is possible to lead a life without politics. That you can pull up the drawbridge of your home or your life or your religion or your values or your difference. 
and think that you will be free to live that way because you live in a state that doesn't mind and doesn't care. So the two temptations of modern freedom are either to fall for ancient liberty because it is more attractive, or alternatively, simply to subsist in the world of modern liberty because it's so comfortable, because relatively speaking, it's so easy. It is much easier to live a life when people aren't telling you what to do than to live a life when you have to be a bit like everyone else. But, crucially, for Constant, if you do that, if you think that your modern liberty is secure because people aren't telling you what to do, you are making a basic mistake because the illusion of the modern world and of modern citizens is that politics maybe will just go away if you don't pay attention to it. That if you, as a modern citizen, get on with your own business, other people will get on with theirs and will leave you alone, and they won't. Because some people will try and do politics for you. You will have given power to your representatives, you will have given power to the sovereign state. It will depend on you, but you're no longer interested in it. And if you're not interested in it, it won't simply leave you alone. Its power will become arbitrary and coercive. And one day, it will reveal itself deep down to be what you should have known it was all along if you lost interest in it. An arbitrary, Hobbesian, sovereign state. And that you do not have security because you cannot protect yourself when it turns on you. And that, for Constant, was the ultimate fear that moderns should have. Not really of the terror and the disaster of the French Revolution, That's what happens when things get out of control the other way. The real fear should be that you never can be secure in your modern freedom if you just live the life of a free modern because you have left politics up to the other people and the other people might not care about you. And so he says at the end of his lecture something that many people who read the lecture miss. They assume that Constant is on the side of the moderns against the ancients and that he's on the side of modern liberty against ancient liberty, but he's not. He says the only way to live in the modern world is to combine them. He says you must have both. It's the doubleness of the modern state. You can't just have one. To be free in the modern sense, to be left alone, requires participation. It's the paradox of modern life. If you genuinely don't want to take part in politics, you need to take part in politics to protect your right not to take part in politics. If you drift away, you will find that politics will catch up with you. If you want security, you need to pay attention. So Constance says, to be a modern citizen, it is not enough to pursue your own interests, your own religion, your own life. You have to take an interest in what other people are doing too. And he says, it's as simple as being informed. You have to read the newspaper. You have to know what's going on. You have to join clubs or parties that are campaigning for the things that you believe in. You have to write to your representatives if you want them to pay attention to you. If you leave your representatives alone, if you let the stewards run the estate, one day you'll realise it's no longer your estate and the stewards are out of control. That lesson is easy to miss. Let me give you one example of someone who I think sort of missed it. There's another very famous lecture about two ways of thinking about liberty, given 
nearly 150 years later, by the then Oxford-based philosopher Isaiah Berlin. It was a lecture from 1958 called Two Concepts of Liberty. And he made what is now a more famous distinction, not between ancient and modern, but between what he called positive and negative liberty. So Berlin makes the distinction in terms of liberty defined as something that we have and liberty defined as something that we don't have. I'll do negative first. So negative liberty for Berlin means being free from coercion or constraint. It's the absence of someone telling you what to do. You are free when something is not happening and the thing that has to not happen for you to be free is you must not be being coerced. Positive liberty is the presence of something. It's the capability to act, the capacity to act. You are only free in positive terms if you are able to do the thing that you want. You are free in negative terms if no one is stopping you from doing the thing that you want. And Berlin says pretty much all conceptions of freedom come down on one or other side of that line. Let me just give a couple of brief examples. So one way you could think about this Say you take a town like the one I'm in now, Cambridge. So at the moment, I am locked down in my house. So that means my negative liberty has been severely curtailed. Not quite as curtailed as it might be yet, but for now at least, my freedom is limited in those terms. But say under normal conditions in this town, I wanted to buy a new house, I wanted to move house. There are certain times and places in which laws exist that prevent certain kinds of people from buying a house. You could live in a deeply prejudiced society in which your ethnicity or your religion disqualifies you. There could be a law that says no houses in this town to be sold to Catholics or Jews or women. In Wollstonecraft's world, a woman could not buy a house because a woman could not own property in that way. So if you were, say, a woman under those circumstances or a Catholic under those circumstances and you tried to buy a house and you were told it is against the law, that would be a curtailment of freedom in negative terms. You are being stopped from doing something. You are being forced away from the object that you are pursuing. There are literal barriers in your way. But Cambridge, the town I'm in now, does not have those kinds of rules. You can buy a house, whoever you are, pretty much, as long as you haven't broken the law to get the money to do it. But say you were someone in this town where, to be honest, it's really expensive to buy a house. And you went to an estate agent and you said, I want to buy a house. And the estate agent said, great. The estate agent doesn't say, okay, first of all, fill in this form and tell me what religion you belong to. The estate agent says, great. Uh, how much are you willing to spend? And you say, well, I haven't actually got any money. On the negative liberty account, you're still free to buy a house. No one is stopping you. The estate agent is desperate to sell you a house. There are no barriers in your way, no literal coercive barriers. The state is not going to enforce its will against you. But on the positive liberty account, it's absurd to say you're free to buy a house. How can you be free to buy a house if you can't buy a house? And the reason you can't buy a house is you lack the capacity. You lack the basic means, the literal means. You do not have what it takes even though no one is stopping you. Or another version of this distinction, if someone is addicted to something, say someone is a heroin addict, is that person free? On the negative liberty account, that person is free so long as no one is stopping that person from doing what he or she wants. Negative liberty 
defines freedom in terms of the absence of constraint. So if you are able to go about your business, to buy the thing that you want, to take it, you're free. On the positive liberty account, to be a heroin addict at some level is to be profoundly unfree because your ability to do things, your capacities have been shrunk. The tighter the addiction takes hold of you, the more limited you are in your ability to make choices and to branch out and do different things. Your world shrinks and your freedom shrinks. On the negative liberty account, your freedom hasn't shrunk, even if your world has shrunk. If someone is a heroin addict and you force them to go into rehab, you could do it in the name of freedom. Amy Winehouse's rehab says they tried to make me go to rehab and I said no, no, no. So that no, no, no is the cry of negative liberty. You can't make me. If you try and make me, you're limiting my freedom. But if you force someone into rehab and after 28 days they come out clean, you could argue that you freed them from the thing that was enslaving them. That argument runs all the way through politics and it runs all the way through life. But as our Berlin, who made it famous, says, the history of political thought divides up between the champions of negative liberty and the champions of positive liberty. One of the champions of negative liberty is Hobbes for him, because Hobbes defines freedom in terms of constraint. One of the champions of positive liberty was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the philosophers who lay behind some of the thought that lay behind the French Revolution. And Rousseau's catchphrase was, people can be forced to be free. That's positive liberty. And Berlin says, one of the greatest of all champions of negative liberty was Benjamin Constant the philosopher who understood that freedom had to be defined in terms of the absence of constraint. Freedom had to be defined in terms that allowed people to destroy their own lives, to make a mess of their lives, to squander the things that they had naturally inherited, their health, their intelligence, their well-being. You can still be free in these terms as your life goes wrong and ends in ruin because it's your choice. That, for Berlin, was what Constant stood for, but he didn't stand for that. He explicitly stood for the marrying of the two kinds of liberty because he thought if you just lead a negative liberty life, in the end, positive liberty will get you. And when it gets you, you will not feel free. So if you want to stay free in those terms, don't become a heroin addict. Don't give up on a public life. Don't abandon the world of brotherhood and fellowship and politics, because you're going to need those people to protect you from the other people who are going to try and force you into rehab. A version of that message is also in the greatest thing that Constant ever wrote, a novel called Adolphe. Adolphe is a funny name for a romantic novel. I think it was once a romantic name, but Adolphe isn't really a romantic name now. These are the ironies of history. So just assume that being called Adolphe made you a lover. That novel, which is partly autobiographical, tells the story of a young man who's on a kind of extended gap year, as Constant was, indeed, as Constant was, during the worst years of the French Revolution, travelling around the little principalities of Germany before Germany became a single state, having fun and looking for love. And as a young man, he finds an older woman to love, or at least to try and persuade to love him. And she's a woman called Eleanor, 
who leads a semi-respectable life in one of these little German principalities. She's older. She has two children. She is the mistress of a respectable man. It's a semi-respectable, semi-official relationship. And when Adolf, aka Constant, comes calling with his love letters and his dewy eyes and his protestations that he will die if she does not give herself to him, she's pretty resistant and she's pretty sceptical, as you would be. But he wears her down. And in the end, she either falls for it or for him. And they run away together and they fall in love and they become lovers. And they have to give everything up because that kind of relationship does not fit the bounds of a respectable society. And though she had a kind of semi-respectable life, she's given that up too. You can't run away with a young man and abandon your children and expect to be greeted by polite society as though you've done nothing wrong. And they understand that. They're following their hearts. You can't follow your heart and live by the conventions and the rules. That's what it means to be modern. That's what it means to be a romantic. That's what it means, in those terms, to be free. And they can't be stopped. There aren't borders or barriers or laws that can pull them back. And so they go together into a kind of private exile from the public world. And love is what will have to sustain them. And love does sustain them, but after a while, and Wollstonecraft could have told them this, the love starts to get a little bit wearing and both of them start looking for something else to sustain them too. And it's harder to do it when you're not allowed to lead a public life. It's harder to find the things that will keep you going if all you have is each other. And so it becomes a little bit of a nightmare for both of them, but they are still in love and they have made this commitment and they are moderns and they are free. And so they're going to go on with it. But Adolf's father in this novel wants to pull him back to the respectable world, the world in which people get married, not necessarily on the basis of love, but on the basis of what might be sustainable and indeed what might allow them more freedom. Because if you have a respectable marriage, you can lead a public life. And if you can lead a public life, you can defend your private freedoms. And so Adolf's father sends a friend and sends letters through a friend to Adolf, trying to persuade him to give up this woman and this folly to end his extended gap year and come back into the world of respectable commercial life where he could have a much richer, much fuller life if he would just abandon this foolish love. And he's tempted, he's sorely tempted, and he says and describes it in the novel in the language of freedom that he comes to understand that there are ways in which what he calls an official or sanctioned marriage and a sanction is a kind of constraint. When we are sanctioned, we are limited in what we can do. But a sanctioned marriage might leave him more independent. And independence is a form of freedom than this wholly romantic, wholly free, but in another way, wholly constrained love that he and Eleanor share. He's tempted, but in the end, he doesn't do it. But Eleanor discovers that he's tempted and it breaks her heart. It's an amazing novel, partly because psychologically it feels very modern, even though in other ways it's very, very much not a 21st century story, not least in its sexual politics. But it's also a story about freedom. And it is Constant's lesson. It's his political lesson from his lecture in fictional form. The blind pursuit of modern or negative liberty, of romantic freedom, of freedom of the heart, of freedom to make mistakes, freedom to screw up freedom to do whatever the hell you want, 
is wonderful and exhilarating and it's who we are. And if we all go down that path, it will lead us to ruin. Because when you go into the private world, the public world doesn't disappear. You are trapped in the private world. You need to re-enter the public world if you want to defend your private space. And weirdly, though Constance says in his political writings that Hobbes got modern politics half right, in these terms, it is the Hobbesian paradox. It's all Hobbes. Because Hobbes creates the modern representative state in order that we should be free from politics. Hobbes is not a liberal, but he creates the idea that makes liberalism possible. The idea of escape from politics, escape from coercion. But in that world, the temptation to escape is a fatal trap. You need, constant thought, forms of constraint over the people who have the power to constrain you, even if you're not interested in playing that game. And constant thought, just at the points where politics seems least interesting to you, because you're in love, say, that's when you need to think about it. Because you might be in love, and then you might wake up one day and find that you're not allowed to spend time with the person that you love. You might wake up one day and find that the state has suddenly decided that you have to stay in your home, and that person has to stay in his or her home. And I would have said to you six weeks before I record this, that what I was just giving you was a hypothetical example. That people who are in love in a modern liberal state like the one I live in can be pretty confident that the state is not suddenly going to decide that their love, their desire to spend time with each other is a threat to the security of the state. And here we are six weeks later and the state has decided that you either have to live together or live apart because to move between your house and that person's house is too dangerous for everyone. And weirdly, that is a lesson that Constant took from the world that Hobbes created. For details of where you can find Constant's writing, plus suggestions for lots of other reading, please go to our show notes. In the next episode, it's democracy, it's America, it's Tocqueville.